Welcome to the Phoenix Cast, a podcast about cybersecurity, technology, and innovation issues in the military. We are your hosts, John, Rich, and Kyle. Rich and I are both U.S. Marines, and the opinions expressed on the cast are our own, not official military policy. And the opinions expressed by me are my own, not those of my employer or any other businesses I happen to be associated with. For today's episode, no guests, just uh, the love between the hosts. And I think Rich is back today. I heard him on the I intro. I am back. I mean, I am it is back, true. man, and I am excited. Let's roll. <laughs> yes, no lack of energy here, and no. just in time to to talk about Microsoft Exchange, which I know is what gets womp, everybody's womp. heart pumping. So <laughs> what we're going to talk about is two vulnerabilities inside of Exchange, and then we're also going to talk about meetings. Quite meetings. exciting for both topics. Mm-hmm. So before we get into it, anything you got to get off your chest, or should I go I'm just happy Rich is back. For those of you that can't see him because Ovs, this is a podcast, he's got like an eight-inch beard and uh, his knife hands are comfortably holstered in this moment. Excellent. Nothing to add. Nothing to add as you double knife hand. I wish that people could see this. So first, the exchange vulnerability, there's actually two of them. So vulnerability number one is a server-side request forgery vulnerability which essentially means that an attacker is just going to abuse the functionality of the server so so that it is able to do things that you shouldn't normally be able to do on someone else's server. And then the second one is a remote code execution. However, if you dig deeper into the article, and we have the article in the show notes for you from Bleeping Computer, one of our favorites, it, it has the dot, 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 if your Exchange server is accessible via PowerShell over the internet, then the attackers can get RCE if they're able to do that, which is okay. a big if, but yeah, I mean, like, let's, you know, <laughs> let's just say, I bet there are some people who yep. do not have that blocked. Like, say that one more time. If your Exchange server is open to the internet for PowerShell, that's same like saying, so. if. Yeah, if your front door is unlocked with a giant sign that says, come steal my stuff uh, that is visible from space, is, anyway. Yeah, I mean, fair point, but let let me also say, via the internet certainly is one mechanism. However, uh, do you have public Wi-Fi on your corporate network? How Mm -hmm. many percents of certainty are you that you have the same policy from the unadulterated internet that you do between the Wi-Fi you're hosting and your network. When's the last time you checked that? Did anyone uncheck a box accidentally? Maybe during an outage when something wasn't working right and forgot to put it back? I I mean, not saying that these are things you should do. I'm saying there are things that you could have done. Mm -hmm. True. So uh, just to give you an idea of the scope here, according to Shodan, there are 220,000 exchange server instances that would be vulnerable to this which is a pretty big pretty big number so just remember when we talk about these things a lot because on this podcast sometimes we can get into acronym soup and we can get into things that just make they they sound normal that 220 exchange servers exposed to the internet with powershell ports running like 220k yeah 220,000 now that is that is a scan of uh, from Shodan. So Sh- Shodan, uh, did anyone want to explain that or you want me to take a shot at this? Uh, you go ahead, you go ahead. Okay, so Shodan <laughs> is, is give or take, uh, Google for 
what is out there on the internet. So what Shodan's going to be able to do, webcams, routers, servers, et cetera, that are connected to the internet, Shodan will scan that, uh, you know, do attempt to connect. So you'll see like what kind of banner these devices have, which is going to end up kind of telling you versions of software, things that are supported, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Shodan will go out and scan or look for all this stuff for you and come back and say, hey, here's, here's what I've seen. This is probably a web server, probably running. IIS or Apache or whatever, most likely this version. Uh, and so you can get a bunch of statistics on things that are on the internet from Shodan. Yeah, indexable and searchable IPv4 port scan. Yeah, now it's not yep. 220 that are remotely accessible via PowerShell. That's 220 that Shodan believes is uh, exchange servers that are internet accessible that have that version of exchange running, the vulnerable yep. version of exchange. But yeah, that's but still so a big number. Suffice to say, there are email servers that have Microsoft software running on them that are exposed to the internet in the hundreds of thousands category. Yes, and what could go wrong? Yes. And so uh, what was really cool about this article, it, it didn't just say, hey, there are these two CVEs, and hey, the, the way that they work are one's a server-side request forgery, like kind of abuse, and then the other one is a ro remote code execution via PowerShell. It also said what they were seeing happening in the wild, which I thought was pretty interesting. So what they said was both web shells were being installed on these vulnerable servers and, and specifically something called China Chop Chopper was being used. So Kyle, did you want to give me an like web shell? Yeah. What does so, that mean exactly? Uh Shell is a general term that is used to describe the command line interface for Linux and Unix-based systems, um, which has been adopted by pretty much any computer system. Whenever you get a screen that you can type into and execute commands, it's generally described as a shell. Um, it actually means something about a particular version of software, but for now, just like consider that. Web shell is a way to take that interface, the you type things and execute commands, and put it into a web browser. And I'm massively oversimplifying here, but just hear me out. This is a very common thing for administrators. Like if you log into Google Cloud or AWS, you can basically right click on your VM and say, give me a shell. And it will go womp and pop you up a window. Um, they also both allow you to do web shell connections directly into your API or your SDK for the cloud providers. Um, I know Azure has a version of this too, as do many, many, many orchestration softwares like Kubernetes and, and a bunch of others. So just think you no longer need to do the complexities of SSH or opening your ports or whatever. This allows you to take a web interface that can be secured in a variety of ways, i.e. zero trust and all the other things, and then execute commands. So uh, yeah, I can go to a website and authenticate in some way, and I can execute commands on servers or devices that are not publicly exposed to the internet, but are exposed to the end destination of the traffic coming from that website. So like, let that sink in. This is, again, why zero trust is important, why you should stop talking about DMZs and honeypots and things like that, because this is basically a totally socially acceptable backdoor to run commands on things. And would you mind taking this one, so expert analysis, I love what you've said there. Can you please take it to the next level for me? Why is this such a big deal compared to how, say, you were brought up on configuring a network and what assumptions that are kind of in the back of people's mind could this possibly break from a defender standpoint? Yeah, so we can get kind of deep into this and bear with me for a sec. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go a couple different angles on this. 
Generally speaking, I love web shells. I use them all the time in administering and, and doing things. And like I said, in AWS and GCP, of which I spend 99% of my time inside of Google Cloud, I use them all of the time because they're really easy. But it is very important to understand that when I go to cloud.google.com and log in and use my credentials in a secure browser with my security tokens and all the things, I trust the backend. Like I trust that Google or Amazon have their security ducks in a row and are taking my credentials and authorization and only allowing those things in. So again, this is me extending my trust boundary in a trusted way to an external third party. So if we are talking now about a rando web shell, right? Like I'm going to just www.bobswebshell.com. Not a URL I know it exists, but someone should register it by the end of the day and send me a link. Uh, I don't trust that backend, but I can still throw my creds at it and have no idea what they're going to do with it behind the scenes. Uh, and also, generally speaking, the way we used to do things is you would have to have a very specific chain of command to log into a server. I would need to hit my jump box or authenticate to my VPN client, and then I would need to like access the privileged network using my, um, I'm going to date myself here, my .adm account right on the network, because that's the one that, un that has the actual privileges to do things. And there's a lot of my responsibility protections and a lot of destination authentication protections and then nothing, right? Like if I get on the Cisco router and I've got my admin creds, I can do all the things. And odds are those admin creds will work anywhere. And so now, I, you know, uh, yay DevOps problem is now everywhere kind of topic. Whereas with a web shell, we're generally, generally, again, uh, expecting some sort of zero trust or beyond court model behind the scenes that allows me to auth every single place. That way I don't have keys to the kingdom and I'm using complex tokens and all those sorts of things. So it subverts a lot of what we as uh, <laughs> old men, guys, because that's what we are now, I hate to say this, uh, used to do and puts things easy, but also the easier you make things, uh, the easier they are to spoof, the easier for you to um, be complacent with. Absolutely. And to come out and say another thing, uh, in, in the old school way of thinking, hey, uh, I'm just going to block port 23 and 22 from being able to access my server. And so, no, no one else could get a shell on that server uh, because I'm only allowing HTTP or HTTPS in. And therefore, nobody can run commands on my server like, ah, whoops, like not exactly how that's going to work. Okay, do you guys think we hit this well enough? So I'm thoroughly we educated. Yes. So we got a couple right. CVEs. Uh, at the time of the writing, uh, which I read this article, this is from two days ago, I believe there was not a patch available, but there is looking to be one soon. I wouldn't be surprised if by the time uh, we're recording this or even by the time this comes out, there's a patch already. So, you know, as usual, uh, I think Kyle's getting to the heart of, hey, make sure you are watching, I would say, your logins and activity in the meantime, and then also as soon as you can get this patched. Yeah, John. So one thing I would say for folks that are out there, if you're familiar with HTTPS rewrite rules, these are things that like will help you uh, extremely well. So what I mean by that is if, if people are throwing exploit strings against your web servers that are exposed to the internet over the things we just talked about for exchange that might be throwing this remote code execution at you. If you look at the logs and figure out who's throw or what is coming through those proxies potentially at your servers, I would just say rewriting some of those HTTP requests uh, on the fly in an automatic way might be a really good way to prevent this. And if you have questions about what I just said, we will have a link to the show notes 
uh, in the show notes, you'll find a link to the article and it will explain this in detail because we just don't have the time to go into it ad nausea, but rewrite rules are things you should care about. Yep. And I will even plus one what Rich just said, and this is why we love believing computer because it's like right at the heart of nerd. <laughs> they, you don't even have to think about it. They tell you exactly the string that you can put in to parse your logs and find whether someone has taken advantage of either of these flaws in the article. That's why these guys are awesome. So uh, plus one to what Rich said, don't even worry thinking about it. Just go to the article, control C, control V, and it's right there for you. Bam. And just remember, you got to know what good looks like to know what bad looks like. So please, please, please build some behavioristics into your logs and alerts. Yes. So we, we've got a pretty hot take here on what we should do, and we just covered all that. So the other thing I got, the general Twitter reaction to this is stop running on-prem exchange because this is something that uh, Exchange Online or Office 365, whatever you want to, whatever you prefer to call it, th this is not a vulnerability for that. Uh, so. Kyle, Rich, uh, whoever wants to take it first, what are what's your reaction to the Twitter take of stop running on-prem? All right, just, I'm going to get real and opinionated for a second. I know that should be a shock to everybody, but just, why? Why are you still running Exchange on-prem? I, I want every business to think about economies of scale. And if you are in any sort of business that actually has to make money, that word should mean something to you to your executives, to your finance people, there is a massive benefit to economies of scale, right? A Lamborghini that makes 300 per year versus like the Nissan Leaf or something, there is a very big difference in the cost of those items, even though they each have four wheels and will get you to your destination. One maybe in a fun way, one in a practical way, but either way, end goal being the same thing. And I want everyone to think about economies of scale of security, right? And please don't mistake that I am saying you should just blindly trust anybody out there with your security. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is that I trust that Microsoft has more security people thinking about problems than your business does. I, I mean, there are some businesses that might have more. And there's some businesses that may specialize in that. And those are awesome. And I, I want to encourage that as well. But you have to make a serious choice. And you have to ask yourself, can my team, the people that I have in place today, run an exchange server or secure an exchange server better than Microsoft? And there are companies that are going to be out there that can answer a definitive yes to that question, right? And there are going to be people who have an excess of hubris who will answer no to that question and shouldn't. And then there's the rest of the world, which should absolutely say, no, there's no way that I can maintain that better than Microsoft. So to plus one, or maybe even challenge you a bit there, this is more of a pile-on. Um, yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, I agree. Um, and maybe you are right, maybe you are not about the can you do it better than Microsoft. But my question would be, should you? So even if you do have people who are smart enough to do this, maybe smarter than the Microsoft engineers, those are smart folks. Is that only so many processor cycles, you know, nerd cycles, whatever you want to call it in a day, is this email security what you want your brightest minds working on or is there something that is more relevant to your core competency that makes sense here? Yeah, so I think I could bluntly summarize what John just said, but I think it's worth kicking the dead horse here. If your business line of operation is not run and administer exchange servers, like your purpose in life is not to do that, 
um, which is really easy to identify. If you come to work and, and the company title isn't run Microsoft servers for everybody else in the world, then you're probably not the best people at running that. However, if you run a consultancy, that might be a little different. But um, yeah, I just want to kick that dead horse really hard. Right. And and let's let's look at this practically for a quick second. Like you're not going to go to your smartest IT people and you're not going to tell them, you know what, I need you to change the toner cartridges and I need you to go sweep the floors and vacuum after everyone goes home tonight. Like you, you shouldn't ask them that. I, I realize that I'm talking to an audience of Marines who may have to do those exact things. But what I'm trying to get at is that that's not the most valuable use of why you hired them. Okay. Like there are, you know, discipline and all those the reasons that you can come into, but that is not dollar for dollar, the most valuable use of why you hired them. I bet that you could find, uh, you know, other people who you would pay less to specialize more in that area to make your dollar more efficient to get those things done. And that's what we're talking about here. Your smartest and brightest people should not be wasting time administering exchange. They should be wasting their time or not wasting their time at all. They should be using their time to tackle complex and valuable business problems for you. All right. Horse effectively kicked into oblivion. Yeah, so I'm going to jump in here because one, it's been a while since I've been on the cast. And two, I've wanted to do this publicly for so long. I've wanted to do a Marine Corps martial arts transition virtually. Uh, haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. So I'm going to do that here on this cast. Wait, what does that mean? Uh, yes. Yeah, so those who are not Marines <laughs> listening to this podcast, just know that uh, in the Marine Corps martial arts program, we also value extremely like ethical, you know, legal and moral training while we're doing physical martial arts program or programming and training. So normally when we need to take a physical break because we've outputted a lot of calories, uh, the instructor will, will have what's called a McMap tie-in or a Marine Corps martial arts tie-in where we tie into those other disciplines that are not physical in nature, but more mental. And so John looks like he wants to say something. You, Go ahead, you may know this as a school circle. Uh, yes. So a hip pocket class. A, yes, a hip pocket class. So I God love this because if you're a Marine right now and you're not laughing, <laughs> I question I question you and I throw that out there. So anyhow, uh, by the way, love our MCMAP instructors and our human performance folks. Uh, you are amazing. So having said that, uh, my tie in here is, you know what else you should not run on prem? Meetings. Yes, meetings. Right. So. I want to bring to the audience's attention and very quickly here, I'm going to transition to Kyle, who is like super passionate. Like normally my leg shakes and my knife hand tries to come out of its holster by itself and I have to like put it back in. Kyle is feeling that way right now about meetings, but I'm going to talk about this very data driven for a second. So uh, on September 30th, um, Adam Grant, who, and for those of you who don't know who Adam Grant is, he's an organizational psychologist and a best-selling author that has wrote books like Think Again, um, and, and other novels that um, are, are really great to read uh, in popular you know, writing. Uh, and he talks just about organizational change writ large, has a lot of TED Talks. But he tweeted on the 30th and a very interesting tweet. Um, and, and I'm going to read it just because it's a tweet, so it's really short. But uh, he says, and I quote, time in meetings has more than tripled since February 2020, which is significant because that is when the COVID's slammed the world, right? According um, to Microsoft Teams and their data sets. Yes. Uh, and he also says, and I quote, nearly a third of meetings are unnecessary, wasting 25 million a year 
for every 1,000 people. I'm going to pause for effect there and let that sink in. I know that I don't rate a hot take or a knife hand, but I'm just going to come out here and say that gets five fakes out of five in one third of the meetings are unnecessary. I think that is drastically undercounting. I, I also will say that I'm I'm surprised that number's so low. <laughs> one third. <laughs> but even if you just take that at face value, barf. Yep. Yeah, so there, there's one other thing in the tweet that I want to add in here, and then I'm going to explain a couple of things and turn over to Kyle, because I think this is like extremely uh, useful to talk about in this forum. Uh, so the last thing that uh, Adam Grant says, and I quote, there are four reasons to meet. One, to decide. Two, to learn. Three, to bond. And four, to do. If it doesn't serve one of those purposes, cancel it, end quote. Now, I think that's extremely insightful. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But, bef- but before I do, um, I, I just want to say this much, right? A lot of time, as described with this tweet, is spent in organizations doing things. And here's the tie-in back to the podcast, McMap, yet, yet. We just talked about not having folks run on-prem exchange so that they can do better um, or more effective work for your business, right? Let's say that you did that. You got rid of all your on-prem exchange servers. Microsoft was running them and securing them. You were configuring them and making sure your people have email if you were the IT person at the organization of choice. But then you spent the rest of your day in meetings doing nothing but listening to other people talk, right? Not, not actually getting after the business that you were goals and objectives that your organization has, but just listening to other people talk about them, right? So I think this is like extremely poignant. It sounds weird. Like we just talked about an exchange phone and now we're moving into like effective meetings. We're talking about psychologists like Adam Grant, but I think this is like really, really insightful to think about, you know, as technologists. So, so Kyle, I know you're like super passionate about this topic. So I'm going to kind of tip it over to you to carry us forward. And then I'm going to engage very, very surgically uh, once you are finished with, with your with your portion. But I'll kick it over to you, brother. Okay, so I'm just going to let all the listeners understand that you're about to enter a 25-minute hot take from me because there are few things that I am more passionate about than email and meetings. Basically, productivity software, if you will, right? Like, Uh, I will happily engage with anyone on the merits of Google Workspace versus Office 365 and vice versa, right? I will happily talk to you about time management techniques all the live long day. I will explain to anybody, and there are many videos of me on YouTube talking about this, about the tyranny of email. And what I have not done, actually, is spend any time in any recorded media talking about meetings. But I have talked with other humans for a lot of time about my personal thoughts on meetings. And and when Rich messaged me and said, this is the topic that I want to talk about, I literally wanted to like jump through my phone and high five him and say, yes, we are going to do this because it needs to be done. I am a huge fan of Amazon's principles about meetings. I think they are one of the closest and earliest examples that I had on what being a professional in a meeting, I guess, if I can summarize it down. And Rich, I want to kick it over to you. Can, can you talk for just a quick second, having been the longest term Amazonian on this call, i.e. only, uh, what is the standard right now if you are at Amazon and you want to schedule a meeting? Can you talk to me about like what the ask is? 
Oh yeah. Um, so I will preface this with, you know, it's been a minute since I've been an Amazonian, but I would, this is like foundational to being an Amazonian. So I doubt this has changed, uh, but I could be wrong. That said, when you come into meetings at this organization, it's pretty shocking if you're an outsider for the first time, because you walk in the room, it's dead silent. There are documents like physical printouts of, of just narratives that you're supposed to read sitting in front of you. And you sit there and read for the first 10 minutes. And then when you're finished reading, if based upon the data that you have written, you have an insightful comment to facilitate a decision, which is supposed to be made at the end of that meeting, then you contribute. If you didn't read the document or bring data to the table prior to the meeting, it's very apparent that you probably don't have insight or probably shouldn't comment moving forward. Anyhow, I'm getting into the basics of like how the meeting is conducted now moving forward. But to, to Kyle's point, it's data driven. It's very quiet at the beginning so people can come up to speed. Why? Because people don't expect you to do their work prior to their meeting before you get there, right? So when you come in, they schedule time for you to read the topic and catch yourself up on the most current set of data in order to make a decision because they respect people's time. They know you probably have a different job. And so they're asking for your opinion. So to Kyle's point, at Amazon, there are some business rules about how meetings are run. We follow those, or Amazonians follow those pretty, pretty rigorously. Um, and so there's rules about what meetings are for and what you do when you're in them. So Kyle, I think I beat the dead horse on that one, but I'll tip it back to you to, to continue. No, that's right. So uh, I'm going to massively oversimplify what Rich just said. If you want to have a meeting, you have to build a two to six page document to send to all of the humans that are going to be in your meeting. And the expectation is that all of them will have read that for the meeting. So all the prep work is done and it forces you to be a professional human is the best way that I can sort of summarize that. Um, there, there are a number of things that I love about that. And there are also a number of resources that I'm going to link in the show notes here. Uh, first and foremost, there is a link to the GitHub rules for meetings, which I want to highlight to anybody that's never actually read those. GitHub, I, I have uh, between GitHub and GitLab, um, I have a huge, huge, huge appreciation for those companies because they've been all remote for basically their entire existence. And so this is all pre-COVID. They, they've had to figure a bunch of stuff out. Um, and so I realized I just said GitHub, but this article that I'm going to link is GitLab. I apologize. It's tough to get through the gets. Uh, but they have 10 ways to do meetings right. Please, please, please go read all of this. But I'm going to give you my like two cents on this. The article that Rich originally talked about has a bunch, the Bloomberg article has a bunch of metrics in it. And I want to read a couple here at my speed really quick so that everybody is up to speed. It says managers who spend about 20% more time in meetings than the rest of the average employees need to be more judicious in calling them and letting people know that it's okay to decline. Meeting declines did rise 84% over the past year, according to the same data set. Uh, but that's likely due to the fact that overlapping meetings increased 46% during that same period. And it talks about how this, this number has gone up. And I'm going to share a little bit of my own personal detail here, too. I, I actually use Google Workspace for everything because you all know I work in Google land. I'm a huge Google fanboy. That's a thing. Uh, inside of Google Meetings now, there's built-in time insights. And it will show you with brutal figures and brutal honesty exactly how much time you're spending in each meeting uh, and what the average is. And what I can tell you is that my average number of hours I spend in meetings per week 
is 29.3 hours oh my in god each week this is my life y'all right like and i'm i i support a sales organization i lead a team of 37 like it's a big deal and i have a lot of cross-functional uh job responsibilities so that that is okay but i will tell you right now that the number one pet peeve that anyone can have with me and and i want to remind all the listeners all the opinions expressed on the cast are my own not those of my employer or any of the businesses i happen to be associated with is if you don't have an agenda you go down two cool points in my book every time i see a meeting that doesn't have an agenda every single time i need to know what's going to happen right if i schedule a meeting i will put even if it's just a few words i will put exactly the purpose of that meeting in the agenda because that is, to me is your carrot on the end of the stick of why i should come to that meeting right i absolutely despise recurring meetings other than a daily team stand-up, which I still think has a ton of value for keeping everybody on the same page. But I cannot stand recurring meetings. And what I want is gamification in companies of saving people time, right? I'm going to schedule a meeting for 30 minutes. I will challenge every single listener on this call, every 30-minute meeting you go to, see if you can do it in five. Five minutes, right? And, and here's, what I, here's my opinion on that. If I'm a social guy. I will walk into a meeting and be like, oh, what's up? How's everyone's weekend and all that? But you can burn 10 minutes in a 30-minute meeting finding out how everyone's weekend is, and it's not efficient. And I want to be a brutally professional human when it comes to these things. I will always come into a meeting and say, here's what we're going to get accomplished. Let's race, right? Let's see what is the minimum amount of time or effort that we can do to get to that opinion. Because if I can save you 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes in a 30-minute meeting, that is a, that is a sweet gift. That is time you can get back to check and chat and email or, or wait, doing work. Yeah, so if you're sitting at home and you're saying, hey, uh, this is kind of hippy-dippy civilian Kyle talk. This could never work in the military. As I took my current role, I, st I took every meeting that I have and said, this is going to end in 15 minutes. And I let all my subordinates know, if you don't get through it in 15 minutes, I'm hanging up on you. And so is everyone else. And we, I think we've gone over one time. Uh, I chastised the correct people, uh, and I think maybe myself a little bit. <laughs> and it's been over a year in my current role. We haven't gone over 15 minutes. So you just, need to, you just need to remind people, like, hey, you've got five minutes, and we're ending this call. That's and right. it gets people right down to the point. And, it doesn't, and I haven't seen a lack of sharing. That hasn't quieted people or shut them down. It's just prioritized what they are going to say. And right. I will also sometimes gently let people know, hey, is this something the entire audience needs to know? Or I have things that I want to say, but I'll say, hey, gents, afterwards, stay on and I can, I can describe things. This is not for the entire population. Kyle. So I want to double click on exactly what you just said there. Second pet peeve of mine is you all know how this goes. We're at the end of a meeting. Looks like this thing's going to end five minutes early. And the organizer of the meeting says, anybody have any more questions? And there's this five second pause. And then someone comes off mute. And I'm going to just tell you, I'm going to just let everybody know, right? Because this happens to all of us. I immediately, and I say this all love my heart. I hate the person that comes off mute. I hate them. It doesn't matter what question they're going to ask. It doesn't matter how topical it's going to be. When we've had that three to five second pause after the, does anyone have any more questions? And then someone comes off mute. I'm just like, oh, you're the worst. It's, it's terrible. I hate it so, so much in that moment. Because 99% of the time, and I'm going to just say that like colloquially, it's not topical. 
right? Or if it is topical, it's, it, it's something that one or two people need to be on for. And so to John's point, the like, hey, so-and-so, can you stay and you stay really quick? I just want to cover a separate thing with you. Like, I aggressively want to kick people out of my meetings because I want them to go back to doing what they want to do, right? I don't want to monopolize their time any more than I have to. And we seem to, as a society, and I'm going to blame a lot of COVID on this, uh, have just become totally comfortable with going five minutes over. Like this meeting ended on the hour, it's 04 and people are still talking. I'm freaking out in my chair to go, this meeting was over four minutes ago. You know that, I know that, you can see the same clock I can. I know your computer's synchronized to some atomic clock somewhere. We are not confused. This should be over. Rich. Yeah, so the one thing I want to add here, and I know we're kind of talking about meetings and people <laughs> are probably like, what are you guys doing? And we don't ever want Rich to come back, like go away. Right. <laughs> um, so, but I will say this much, like meetings, especially just events in general, like we have, especially in, you know, Western culture, uh, and I'll just say like as Americans and as DOD members, we are hyper-focused on the start of that meeting. If you are one minute late, and I quote a previous operations officer I worked with, who's also a Kansas city, uh, fan and he'll know who he is if he's listening to this cast i would get crushed if i was one minute late to a meeting all we're asking for to kyle's point is for us to be as laser focused on the end of that meeting so that people's productivity time after the meeting can be highly efficient and their output but output could be extremely meaningful so that's really my insight here is that like you know we look back, um, I saw this tweet, I was like, hey, based on a Bloomberg article, there's some data about like what the COVID, post-COVID lag time, right, to getting back into like highly efficient business like, type rules. I think we've learned some stuff from COVID, right? There's a lot of things we can do remotely and don't physically have to be on site to do. We know that we don't have to run on-prem stuff and be a little more secure from the Microsoft volume that John just talked about and introduced. And, and I would just ask folks to like be hyper vigilant on what you're doing in a meeting, right? If, if you're not really using that for like business reasons, then like let's think about why we're having the meeting and to how efficient we are at the end, um, if that makes sense, guys. Yeah, and it, I know that I went on a rant there for a little while, but let's talk about that data for a quick second, Rich, because I think what you just brought up has a lot of merit. You know, I don't think any of us should be surprised that in the transition that we all had from normal work, I will say, pre-COVID work, to COVID work, I'm not shocked that meetings went up like in any way, shape, or form. We went to a, a totally remote environment. And I think that there's two ends of that spectrum. I think there are like managers who wanted to know that people's butts were in seats and so scheduled a lot of meetings and used that as sort of a proxy. And I also think that we went from being in an office environment around a ton of people to not. And we thrive in social environments. Like I want to talk to humans. And even if they're two dimensional boxes where I don't know if anyone has legs or not, like I want to actually connect with folks where I might've had a lot fewer meetings before, but I need the social interaction with my teammates. And so I want to do that. And as we're coming, uh, as we're coming out of that in some ways and in some industries and not to imply in any way, shape or form that like any of this is over, but just as we're transitioning more into a, a more highly vaccinated and more businesses that are bringing people back into the office perspective, I think vigilance is the key to say, Hey, I know we've had this meeting on the agenda for the last two and a half years. Do we still need it? 
is this meeting need to happen once a week or could we make it once a month, right? Or is this something that we can do ad hoc? And oh, this is a 45 minute meeting. Can this be 15 minutes? Or, and hear me out, just don't go if you don't get value out of a meeting. I, I will tell you that I probably have 25% of my calendar double booked or more any week, right? So I actually have had through uh, just general necessity and responsibility that I have in my role, have had to become very aggressive at just being like, nope, I'm not attending that one. And, and it's very well understood amongst the people that I work with. If you have an action item for me, I will happily take that when the meeting is over. And you can deliver that to me over chat or email, which will take me five to 20 seconds to read. And then I can save myself 29 minutes and 40 seconds or something to that effect to do other things. And I'm perfectly happy. Any of the meetings that I have scheduled, no one has anything, cool. You don't need to show. I, no, no harm in the game on that. Just know that if there's a decision made in that meeting, you don't have a, a vote, and that's fine. Kyle, can I put you on the spot here? Totally. So we, we are challenging some paradigms and, and asking people to kind of think of things differently, specifically their settings and COVID and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Do you know what a skip level is? And could you please explain that to me? Yeah, so a skip level is where uh, a manager and an individual contributor or a manager and a direct report generally have one-on-ones, right? Uh, so that's usually a, a worker and their immediate boss. And a skip level is where you generally will go one level above. So you have a meeting with your boss's boss is generally a skip level. Or your boss's boss schedules a meeting with you. Uh, I know a lot of leaders that really, really value their skip level one-on-ones and will do like skip levels, skip, skip levels, like once a quarter, or once a half or something like that. Uh, very common tactic though. Very common tactic in the civilian world. So here, oh, is, yeah. so here is my challenge for the military. I know it is super simple for you to say, oh, well, I've got my lieutenant colonels and they work for the colonel and that will be that. And if there's anything that I need to hear, I'll hear it from the colonel. And what, or let's say majors and a lieutenant colonel up to a Fulberg colonel or lieutenants up to a captain, up to a major, however you would like to look at this. I would like us to normalize skip levels. If you are concerned as a colonel with your lieutenant colonels talking to the general or as a lieutenant colonel, your major's talking to the colonel, I would argue, argue that you have larger problems than just what they may say in that meeting. Oh, and yeah. that is something that should be addressed. I think that this to me is actually not a, a challenge based on my military experience. I think that I got very lucky and that I had a lot of leaders who were very empowering to me and, and supportive of me. And I think that that's a mutual relationship. Like I, I make it a big priority to try to make my boss look as good as humanly possible at all times. That's just a good survival tactic for anyone who's out there. Don't ever try to make your boss look bad. That's a bad scene. Um, and in my civilian, after, you know, getting out of the military, my civilian experience, I have encourage that at every single level. You want to go have a one-on-one -one with the CEO? Rock that, Casbah. It's your career. You, you know, you get the mentorship that you want. You give the feedback that you want. That's actually not my business. Uh, you know, if you're going to go, I, I don't know, like complain about me, I guess that becomes my business later, but that's fine. I still want you to have that option. And from a military perspective, if we take that tactical corporal mindset, which is something that I've actually tried to adopt in every way, shape, or form with my teams that I've built in the civilian world, is that it's like, you know, message tracker, see, Antarctic and corporal all rolled into one. Like I want every single person on my team to be able to go do the things they need to do to be successful. And they shouldn't have to use me as a bottleneck for that. Uh, in the civilian world, we have this concept of like, how far up do you have to go to have a conversation that is over? Right. And so it's like, 
I am an individual contributor in marketing and someone else is an individual contributor in, I don't know, IT, like, does the marketing person have to go talk to the manager of marketing and then the director of marketing to schedule a meeting over with the director of IT and then, you know, like work their way back down? Or are they cool to just like make a meeting with each other? Right. There, there's an interesting gap there where anybody that asks me permission to go talk to somebody, I'm like, stop. Yes. Go talk to whoever you want. Don't ever ask me again to go talk to somebody. Just go talk to them. I am not the arbiter of your time or your communication style. That's on you. And I will encourage that at every step of the journey. And to that point, yes, I want my lieutenants talking to my colonel. I want that because they're going to give that person line level exposure and experience that they need to make good decision making, right? We're all insulated to some extent, right? Like I have directors who now have managers who have individual contributors. So I'm like four levels, three levels away from people on my team. If I don't ever talk to those people, I am in the dark, right? I am at a deficiency. I am not able to make good decisions with all the information at my disposal because of that. I need that intel. I need that sit rep from everybody. Yeah, so I am going to transition us here. Yeah very, very quickly from, you know, this conversation on on meetings, because I think there's one insight that came from Adam Grant that I really want to hit on. So, you know, we mentioned earlier that, you know, in his tweet, he talked about like the four reasons why he thinks people should meet, right? And kind of that's come out of this Bloomberg, Bloomberg study, right? So he says, decide, learn, bond, and do, right? And so, um, I thought that was pretty insightful and, and I want to kind of apply it a little bit to, the military uh, from a planning perspective. And then I also want to bring in some of the IT best practices to this conversation. It should be relatively quick, but I want to bring this up as a topic. uh, And and I think you guys will see why once I mention it. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there are four reasons. A lot of time in the Marine Corps or in the in the military, we very much focus on decisions being made in meetings. So that's kind of the, the number one reasons why people say, hey, I'm coming to a, a meeting because I want to make a decision and I want to move forward, which kind of facilitates the do part, right? I think there's some cultural things that like the bonding part talks about. Like it's really good for people to get together. That's what people do, right? We like culture as human beings, generally speaking, to, to kind of work with each other. But to stick on the decide and do for a, for a second, I think especially in this day and age with the way we uh, look at what's happening in the world, we generally as, as a military, and I'm talking DOD writ large now, have to be pretty judicious with our time in how we think about planning and campaigning to support national defense, right? So what do I mean by that? There are professional planners for those who are in the military or not and don't know this, at least in the Marine Corps, it's literally their job. They go to a school, they become what's called a Marine Air Ground Task Force or MAGTAF planner. And those folks have a military occupational specialty of planning. Um, and this isn't the, the do basic planning at, you know, at the every, you know, uh, in, on an everyday basis at a unit. That, that's professional military education for, you know, both our enlisted and our officer personnel. But these folks actually go to pretty high speed military planning schools where they learn to be effective at what we call campaigning. So the inputs of one operation, right, and the outputs of one operation feed the inputs of others. And over time, you should get to some strategic level goal that your your organization is after at large. So that's great, Rich. Thanks for uh, giving the PME to to the uh, to the audience. But like, how is that relevant for today's conversation? Well, I think when we talk about how we do 
planning in the military, just like this whole concept of meetings and where we spend our time, we've atrophied a bit. I say we, the DOD, on how we do planning. Um, and, and what's really interesting is that if you look at software design, a lot of designers have to come up with the design first, obviously, of the thing they're going to build before they actually start typing and coding, right? And for those of you who are technologists, this makes complete sense to you, right? For those of you who are not technologists and are more on the military side of the house, this might not be so intuitive, but there's things that could be benefited from both sides of the house. So where I'm going with all of this is that recently I, I read a book, and we'll put a link in the show notes, that's called The Geography of Thought. And the subtitle of the book is How Asians and Westerners Think Differently and Why. And uh, so when I talk about this planning and systems engineering or like IT software development planning and where they they marry up is that this book who's written by uh, a gentleman named Richard E. Nisbet, and and he's a a psychologist, one of the actually foremost psychologists, um, actually John, I'm really surprised, break, break. Uh, that if you know of this man, because uh, he's a professor at a university in a Midwest state that is north of the state of Ohio. Um, and so I'm just really interested if you've ever heard of this individual before. I just have to ask I ha- that I have not. And did you just publicly acknowledge that you recognize territory north of Ohio? There are things that are there are things that are north of Ohio. This, yes. this should not I be in the cast. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it is. Go blue. <laughs> so um, yes, uh, I had to mention that uh, college football NCAA season. But where I'm going with all this is that uh, this book talks about the geography of thought, right, and how Westerners and non-Westerners think differently, and and basically why I think this is relevant to the cast. And I'll. I'll a button on this here in a second is that uh professor nisbet talks about how eastern thought is very holistic right where they take in the environment in the relationships between entities in the environment and how they design and western thought is very very focused on salient objects or people and the associated attributes of those individual actors in the system right um, and so why I think this is super relevant, Tommy, to our cast is that when we talk about being efficient with time or you look at kind of the exchange volume that we talked about at the beginning, the environment matters. Right. And I, and I feel like we've lost that in our military planning. We are very focused on how do I defeat this one entity or object in the system? But we don't really look at once I defeat that object or let's say have an effect on that object, how does it? actually manifest itself in relationship to the entirety of the system, which kind of relates back to how systems engineers think about system design uh, from an IT perspective. So, you know, I know I've ranted here for a minute, but but I'm interested to get your guys' thoughts on this because I feel like if we focus on this skill that I think is atrophied a little bit in the military, with the interconnectedness of the world in today's environment, I think we'll probably set ourselves up for success way more effectively than we have in the past. I'm just interested. John, I'll tip it over to you first. Yeah, so before we get into the meat on this, I I want to recommend a book, uh, Simon Sinek's Infinite Game, somewhat talks about what Rich is discussing here about things not having a discrete or finite ending and that you need to kind of model thinking around that. I would recommend you give that a read as that is a good one. 
I'll also say that that is the favorite book of my CEO. That book has influenced tons of my company. I love that book as well. So plus, plus, plus a thousand. Thank you. Next, I will tease a cast that is coming up. Uh, we're going to have Brett Friedman on, and he's going to discuss a book that he wrote uh, called On Operations, where we're going to talk about how the operational level of war is not even a thing and how to more efficiently tie the tactical to, to the strategic. So we will have an entire cast on this uh, coming up very, very soon. Uh, but Rich, I agree with what you are saying. I also understand and recognize and will have to reflect a little bit on kind of our being enamored on tangible, achievable things, and sometimes at the cost of what is right in the longer term. Yeah, you know, and, and I think the reason I'm bringing this up is if, for those who, do, who ha aren't systems engineers, right, or not just systems engineering, but systems design, right, there's a language that's called universal markup language or UML, which talks about like the discipline of, of of designing and planning things from different levels and different tiers, like a top-down or bottom-up approach. So if you don't know what UML is, we'll put a link in the show notes as well. But like that, that's also a good thing to kind of look at from a technologist perspective that kind of informs how we look at things from a military planning perspective. And, and to be very, very specific, what I'm talking about here is in our joint operational planning, there is a phase where you're specifically supposed to focus on design. And I would invite everybody without going through that, because John says, well, you know, we're going to cover this in later casts, without going into this operational design or planning in, in a pedantic way. I think that many planners skip over design, to John's point, to get to an outcome that's faster because they either think their time is condensed or not. Um, rightfully because you want to win. Yeah, you want to win, yeah. right? Speed and so, you know, victory. exactly. And so I, I would recommend. To, to folks that like design and understanding the environment of a system and how systems interact with each other and what those relationships are, which harkens back to relational databases. I know we're, we're in the area of big data where relational databases and compute times take a long time. So like NoSQL or non-relational databases are kind of the thing that's been a thing now for about a decade. But I would, I would recommend that if you're doing planning from a military perspective, one, don't do the planning in the meeting. That's not what the meeting is for, right? You do your homework with good data and analysis and design, and then you come into the meeting with your designs written up in a way that people can read them and look at the homework of how you got there and then get to a decision so that you can go do, getting back to what Adam Grant said. So that's kind of my rant on you know how the military planning piece ties into you know, both what we were both topics we were talking about today, but but more importantly, it's kind of a challenge for folks out there. Like, I think this skill has atrophied, and we could be way more effective as a joint force if we start talking to each other about the environments that we're operating in and how the inputs to one action become the outputs of another, and how they feed each other over time to campaign to get to a strategic objective. Um, if that makes sense. So, John, it looks like you want to say something, brother. I do not think we could have closed this podcast on a better note than what Rich left you at. I would highly recommend you let that sink in for a minute and ask yourself the question, am I modeling myself like this? On that note, Kyle, hit me with the hottest of hot takes. Okay, 
I'm going to share a thing in the show notes that I want everyone to go watch. I have an old friend. His name is Jeff Frick. He used to run uh, a video podcast or a video blog style thing called The Cube that did a bunch of media and entertainment. He then ran his own podcast called Turn the Lens that was incredible. And like he interviewed a ton of incredible people. He now runs a video uh, podcast or a video blog series called Work 20XDX. And Jeff interviews the coolest humans on the planet and talks about the weirdest things that are just fascinating and all focused on how we work and how our brains work, how we work with others and generally apply to just like business hashtag, uh, just, you know, all the things, nothing in particular, but all the things that are generally related. He interviewed a gentleman whose name is Darren Murph. Darren Murph is the chief people officer at GitLab. And there is an interview that Jeff did with Darren that I want everyone to go watch. It's not super long. It is super powerful about meetings and how we do them. And I don't care if you are in a foxhole designing the next campaign or building software. I want you to have shorter meetings, right? On the same token, I want you to stop running exchange yourself. I don't care how good you think you are. The odds are in my favor that you suck more at running exchange than Microsoft does. So let them do that. I haven't run an email server in a long time because Gmail just works and it's never gone down on me once. So awesome. But think about every decision you're making. Think about every meeting you're in and think about if that's the most valuable use of your time in that moment. And if it's not, just say no, everybody. Just say no. Rich, you're back. And I noticed the knife hands were not out too much minus a couple uh, intermission knife hands. Hit us with uh, Rich's knife hand for the day. Absolutely. So I know I was a little lengthy in my conversation today, but I'll be extremely short with the knife hand moment. The knife hand moment is what you do, and I want you to think about this as a listener, what you do every day matters. I don't care what your job is. I don't care if you're in the military or not. What you do as a human being matters. And more importantly, you should be wickedly proud of whatever it is you do professionally. And so to talk to my military audience for a second, when you go to work every single day, if you don't have a plan for that day and you don't ruthlessly stick to it and avoid letting others control what that day ends like to you, like if your goals don't get accomplished by the end of the day, you should extreme, be extremely, extremely sensitive to that. And what I mean by that is like, you don't need to get mad. You don't need to get overly happy. You should just be sensitive, right? Tune your system to its most optimum output. And if that means to Kyle's point, you're going to tell people, no, this doesn't align with the goals of my day. And while it's interesting, and I'd love to talk to you about it, I'm going to actually achieve my goals because especially if you're in the DOD, there's an adversary out there that's trying to ensure that you're not successful. The easiest way for you to make that a true statement is to get off of the main path for your daily objectives. And I just want that to sink in. And that's my knife hand for today, John. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us. You can connect with us on social media by going to Twitter and following at USMC underscore T-F-P-H-O-E-N-I-X. That's at USMC underscore Task Force Phoenix. Our editor is Sarah Clarkson, and marketing support is provided by Jake Osborne. You can support the cast by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a five-star review and accompanying comment. And with that, we are out.